Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people and the planet. From March, focusing on what is feminism. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Susan Weedman Snyder, who has spent her life as an activist, author, and editor dedicated to feminist change in the Jewish community. In 1976, she and other women founded Lilith Magazine to bring attention to sexism and Judaism and to push for feminist change. She has written on a wide range of issues, including intermarriage, conversion, domestic abuse, LGBTQ issues, and has never shielded away from controversy. Let's get into the interview. In 1976, after spending some time in Israel with her family, Susan Weedman Snyder and a small group of women decided to start an independent Jewish magazine. They named the quarterly magazine after the Bible figure Lilith, Eve's predecessor in the Garden of Eden, who was expelled for wanting equality. Susan Weedman Snyder and Lilith have been awarded a number of awards and one of the most notable, the American Jewish Congress Eleanor Roosevelt Prize. Women, the Israel Women's Network and American Jewish Congress honored her as one of a handful of women, including Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, to receive the Jewish Women Who Have Made a Difference Award. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for having me, Anne-Marie. I'm delighted to talk to you today. Yes, I'm delighted to talk to you, too. And just I'm, I'm so excited and glad that we finally got to um, do this. Uh, so before we get into the interview, I always like to know a little bit of personal information about people because it helps me understand kind of how they think and how they came to be who they are. Um, so I guess what, uh, you know, uh, there's so many things that women can and do in the world. What uh, drove you to want to start a magazine and, and really focus on women? Well, um, certainly the the seeds for creating Lilith magazine were not uh, sown by me alone. There have been, uh, and there were certainly in the early 70s when Lilith got started, groups of women in academic life, women who are who were pressing for ritual changes in as they were in other religious practices as well looking for room within the tradition for women to have a greater range of expression. It was a time when the first women to be publicly ordained as rabbis in Judaism were making their case for admission to rabbinical school. And in fact, uh, the Jewish community just celebrated a few months ago the ordination of the first woman rabbi officially ordained by a seminary. Um, Rabbi Sally Presand in the Reform Movement, and uh, you know, celebrating that 50-year milestone was pretty exciting. So the the late 60s and early 70s were a time of excitement and turmoil for a lot of reasons. And women who had been active in, among other things, the civil rights movement, among other things, in movements to. Uh, the, the anti-war movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, people who were looking for social betterment also turned their lens onto religious practice and spiritual practice. And Judaism, uh, you mentioned in your intro, Henry, that uh, Lilith, uh, Lilith magazine addresses sexism in Judaism. And it was really more than that. It was the fact that um, Jewish women had been in the past closed out of halls of study, for example, uh, closed out of various ritual roles. And at the same time, there is certainly growing room within Judaism, as there is in many other religious traditions, a certain elasticity and uh, the excitement that was afoot in the early 70s was to stretch those boundaries for participation, not only to see women 
as religious leaders, but women as recognized community leaders, as the presidents of synagogues, for example, uh, as people who were entitled to learn and teach religious texts, um, the Torah, which is the Bible, the, the Talmud, which are writings about scripture, and so on. So it, it was a time of a lot of excitement where women and other people were pushing the boundaries, wanting to have fuller experiences. So with that, a group of women, and I often say about myself that I came in on the um, on the sort of mezzanine floor, uh, I had a very interesting lunch. I was doing a lot of freelance writing at the time with someone who said to me, well, a couple of us are talking about starting a Jewish feminist magazine. What do you think? And I said, it's a great idea, assuming somewhat naively that the project was much farther along. In fact, it was a, a gleam in the eye of a few very talented, very intelligent women from whom I was delighted to learn. And I was part of the cohort from about the second conversation onward. Um, and out of those conversations grew Lilith Magazine, where I have been very, you know, proud and um, delighted to be its editor-in-chief since its inception. It's been a fantastic learning experience for me, of course, and also a real opportunity to see change being made. Lilith's readership cuts really across all the dimensions of Judaism, from people who would consider themselves Jewish by ethnicity rather than necessarily by religious practice, all the way to people who are uh, among the more observant of Jewish laws and customs. And within that, a big age range. We have high school and college students who have served as Lilith interns and who are avid Lilith readers. And we just started this year a cohort of writers over 40, emerging writers. And in that group of uh, women we mentored and uh, are publishing now, we have women in their 40s. And uh, I think the oldest woman in that group is in her middle 80s. So it's been a very, um, yeah, it's very, it's very exciting to see what is happening at the present moment. The cover story of the current issue of Lilith is women writers over 40 make their debut. Uh, pretty thrilling material in that. A lot of stories that wouldn't otherwise have been told if we hadn't quite deliberately set out to cast our net, invite people to apply to be part of this cohort. Yes. And, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, I only have like, a, I would say, uh, from a my collegiate knowledge, I guess you would say, of Judaism, and then um, I guess uh, and 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 knowledge from uh, friendships and things like that that I have. But I have found, and you know, um, the thing that always interests me about Judaism is that it kind of has a contrast. And what I mean by that is that it is traditional, but yet progressive at the same time. And what I I mean by that is that you know. Um, uh, anybody that has any kind of uh, religious background, specifically, I guess, if you tie in Judaism and um, I'm just going to say the uh, model theistic religion um, and know that, you know, Judaism is uh, the seed, the root of um, the start of, you know, how we came to be as, you know, uh, humans and our life and our purpose and things like that as 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 people. Um, and you know, uh, one of the things that I have, uh, and, and that comes into, I guess you'd say the, the traditional aspect of Judaism and the, you know, giving us our, our roles of what it means to be male, female from, uh, the perspective of, uh, you know, the law of, uh, of, of God. Um, but I have also seen that, uh, from a, a Judaism perspective and specifically when it came to like civil rights, the people who were standing, um, with uh, African Americans and Blacks around the world, or um, uh, Jewish people versus um, uh, anybody else. So that's what I mean by contrast. That I've seen it be 
um, something that is set in tradition, but is also progressive and progressive, you know, it should be that everybody is, you know, seen the same, but we know the the real world of how people look um, and put people in boxes and seeing that the religion itself has been progressive and pushing forward and, and standing with things that were, um, you know, deemed, uh, you know, uh, untouchable or scary in society. And uh, the reason I'm, I'm bringing that up is that it, it then leads me to, you know, uh, Live the Magazine, how you have then taken on this, you know, approach to, um, you know, in, empower women. So I find that so interesting and also in a way like amazing that people should really understand that concept that we're taking something that is, you know, so traditional, but then also progressive. And that should open people's eyes. But, you know, uh, I shouldn't say it, but that it's right <laughs> in a way. <laughs> and it's because, the, you know, it, it's coming from the root. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking as you said that, as you said that, Anne-Marie, about the progressive, uh, in contrast to the traditional, and of course in Jewish texts, there are lots, lots and lots of messages about how you have to look out for other people, that you, uh, in the Passover um liturgy which uh, a holiday which is celebrated in the home and with special foods the message there is let all who are hungry come and eat and the idea that there's a powerful message of repairing the world tikkun olam it goes in hebrew that you're supposed to really have as one of your goals while you're on this planet of making things better so i think you're right that there is a strong progressive sort of improvement thread that runs all the way through Jewish texts, through the liturgy, and through the practice as well. This strong contrast between what's progressive and what is traditional is found also even in the instructions that people are given for how you behave if you are hiring someone to do work for you. You cannot hold someone's wages overnight it says in the traditional text, because the person working for you will need that, those wages in order to, to have nourishment and shelter and so on. But what's also interesting to me is that we have in what we think of as very traditional um, activities within the home, that same thrust toward looking out for other people, giving charity before you feed yourself. You're supposed to feed your animals. You're supposed to make a charitable contribution linked to all the holidays, including Sabbath observances. It, if the, I, I, the reason that I'm chuckling is that I had a, a, a telephone call a while ago from a graduate student who said that she had been pointed toward Lilith because she was doing some work on what the early feminist magazine, second wave feminism magazines that had been up and running, say, by the middle 70s or the late 70s, when they were writing about food, it was always in a very negative way. Food was either something that kept women enslaved in the kitchen with food preparation, or food was dangerous and linked to eating disorders and sort of the, the male gaze on women's bodies and a desire constantly to keep your body in shape. And of course, Jewish women and other, like all other women, um, are, are falling prey to messages in the culture at large. But the reason that this graduate student was calling me is she said, I've gone through back issues of Lilith and unlike any other periodical that is operating under the rubric of feminism, Lilith sees food in a positive light. And I said to her, well, food has been an important transmission vehicle for culture. It's certainly, um, there are traditional foods in Judaism for holidays, for Sabbath, as there are in many, many other religious cultures. But also that um, food has been a way that females have communicated with one another. And Lilith was always aware of honoring that. Not just, not just with recipes, but also with stories of food culture and how understanding 
different practices within Judaism. Jews that, who come from the Mediterranean or who come from North Africa, who come from Latin America, have different foods and different food traditions from Jews who are considered Ashkenazi Jews who come from Eastern Europe or, or Russia. Uh, and what we learn about difference as well as similarity when we look at food culture. So um, there is, of course, that, as, as I think you, you aptly name it, a progressive strain within what we think of as traditions. Yes. And, you know, and, um, and also, you can correct me if I'm wrong, what I, I remember, because um, I studied uh, um, some religion in, in college and, and things, and we would go on these, uh, um, I guess you could call them uh, trips and things like that, that we would go to different uh, things from synagogues to even uh, checked out the Hare Krishna, everything, um, and just learning about, you know, why you believe what you believe, which I think it's, it's important for people to examine that. Um, and that it is uh, the Jewish uh, religion is also uh, feminine in its word uh, um, in its origin, meaning that it runs usually through the mother. If I'm correct, is that if I remember correctly? And so, um, being that if it runs through the mother, it's naturally um, uh, feminine. Um, and you know, having this discussion about feminism is perfect. Um, perspective, because in in fact, traditionally. Jewish identity was matrilineal, and if your mother was Jewish, uh, you you were considered Jewish. But now, certainly over the last probably 50 years, there has been a patrilineal descent um, stance as well. And now for most Jews, there is, um, a, it, it, one is considered Jewish if one identifies as a Jew and has at least one Jewish parent. No, I mean, all right. So it's a little bit different. It's a little different. Yeah. You're absolutely right. That traditional view was matrilineal. And um, yes, the, that, you know, there are also, of course, strong female figures in the Bible and in the second wave of feminism in the late 60s onward. One of the kinds of material we were seeing a great deal, we saw it a lot in Lilith, was the rewriting of Bible stories centering the women in the stories. Uh, the story of Hannah, who is believed to be drunk, when in fact she is wailing and praying and offering the first petitionary prayer that's ever recorded in the Bible because she has not yet conceived and she's praying to have a child. Um, and there have been many elaborations on her story. Then, uh, and, and a lot of these, they're called Midrashim, a lot of these retelling of biblical tales um, circle around fertility, what happens with infertility, issues around marriage, childbearing, and so on. And um, we used to get a lot of fiction, actually, that we sort of dubbed, um, I, I wouldn't say unkindly, but in uh, a slightly exhausted fashion, we dubbed ancestor worship, because for a while, this was the thread that ran through a lot of the fiction we received at Lilith. And in fact, I, I would love to share with you, and of course, with your listeners, that Lilith has compiled finally its very first book after 45 years of publishing. We have just compiled a fiction collection called Frankly Feminist Jewish Women's Stories from Lilith Magazine. And there aren't a lot of ancestor worship stories in here. They are very modern stories, despite the fact that some of them were first published in Lilith 45 years ago. And the title, Frankly Feminist, comes from Lilith Magazine's tagline, which is independent, Jewish, and frankly feminist. So we borrowed that phrase as, as the title of the fiction anthology. And the very first story in the collection, the stories are not grouped chronologically, but they're grouped thematically. And the first section of this collection is called Transitions, and it walks through or reads through the life cycle 
And the first story is called The New World. It's by Esther Singer Kreitman, uh, the woman who was the sister of Isaac Basheva Singer, the Nobel Prize winning author who wrote primarily in Yiddish, and his sister who was almost unknown at the point where we published this short story, also was a gifted storyteller. Isaac Basheva Singer wrote the story that later became Yentl, the movie that starred Barbara Streisand and many other wonderful stories and novels. And his brother also was a renowned novelist. The sister, who was told by their mother that she would never be marriageable if anyone discovered that she was a writer, the mother apparently destroyed all her early writings. Subsequently, she... Um, she wrote, she published, she married, she had children, and one of her sons saw to it that her writing came to light. And what's fascinating about this story is it's told from the perspective of a not-yet-born daughter who says, I can't wait to get out of here. I'm in the womb. I wonder what the outside world is like. And she's born, and the family is grieving that she's not a boy and send her out Send, they send her out to be taken care of by a wet nurse. And it's a, a fascinating beginning to this section called Transitions from Birth or from an Embryonic Stage through Adolescence, um, a story by Myla Goldberg, who wrote the marvelous novel Bee Season, also subsequently made into a a movie about a girl's experience at summer camp where she's bullied by the other girls and goes through a wedding uh, in Persia where a uh, an Iranian Jewish girl is betrothed to a man she hardly knows and what that's like, all the way through to death and a funeral scene. So that we we have, with all these stories, What's to me a really fascinating admixture of modern sentiment, modern perspectives interwoven with traditions, the traditions of, say, burial and what happens when you unveil a tombstone. Uh, and the second section of this book is called Intimacies, which is about intimate friendships, relationships that... Um, that really don't often get exposed. Uh, a Jewish woman in 1919 goes to have her hair cut. The woman who's cutting her hair is a black woman. How they interact. They both have their eye on the same man. Uh, what goes on in their rather subtle connection. What is spoken, what is not spoken. and uh, And on and on like that, a section on transgressions in which there's more about relationships that are disapproved of. There's Lot's wife, a, a story, a really marvelous story by gifted storyteller Michal Lemberger, who describes how Lot's wife sets the town on fire so she can escape rapists with her daughters. The husband apparently is willing to offer up her daughters to placate an enemy, and she's having no part of it. It's it's pretty powerful stuff. Um, yeah, and more and more. I I love these stories that um, you know. Just I know you're just giving us uh, little snippets, but uh, you know these touch on things that affect you know, obviously just not just Jewish women, just women in general. Um, a lot of people, well, women know how complex women are. <laughs> and I guess men do too, to a certain extent. That I was going to say women are complex, but I guess women know that and men know that. Aren't we all? <laughs> Very complex, for sure. I think one of the great things about fiction is that we can enter into the lives of other people. You know, we can write about lives we know well, and lives we can only imagine. And I think it's one of the great gifts of fiction that it can inspire empathy in us. It brings us into lives different from our own, and sometimes lives different from that of the author. 
Yes, I know. And it, it you know, and it opens your whole mind and you can, uh, you know, uh, uh, to be in somebody else's shoes for just that moment, which I think is uh, incredibly important right now in today's world. And, you know, so in looking at all these different uh, perspectives like uh, that you have uh, in your new book, um, you know, what would you say, I guess, uh, let's start, I guess, at the, at the top, because a lot of people uh, have these misconceptions, especially when you say the word feminism, right? Um, sometimes it makes people retreat and curl their toes and, and want to uh, turn around the other way. Um, and so I guess if you were going to give your own definition for feminism, what would you call, what would you say it is? Well, I think feminism is the deep-seated belief that women are human beings. <laughs> I think that that we are a cut in very specifically gendered terms. Some of that makes sense, and some of it doesn't. So um, until very recently, gender was a fairly non-negotiable category, although the Talmud and Jewish writings recognizes probably five different genders that they're uh, or are male and female, and then various points along the way, the way that a lot of Native American cultures, a lot of tribal cultures recognize that there are gradations in those gender, uh, in the gender binary. But for for the purpose for the purposes of today's discussion, um, I think a a straightforward definition of feminism would be one that acknowledges that all humans are created equal, that women, however you want to define that, are equally empowered in this world to have agency over their own lives. And I think that's a tremendously important and empowering definition yes um yeah and and i like you that you brought up to have women have you know agency over their own lives bodies and everything because right now and this is my perspective um and i think it's easily being seen around the world if you're awake um that i feel like women are <laughs> on, on kind of an uh, on their way to the extinction list <laughs> And what I mean by that is that uh, you know the the uh, the push in this uh, current state of the world seems to be that we're trying to push towards a um, like almost genderless, um, not able to you know you, like you have to be kind of yeah we're moving to kind of a a, a genderless um, um, I don't uh, what do they call those. Uh, can't think of the word right now. I don't want to say drone or droid or uh, a zombie or something like that. Then you you no longer you're just you're just a human, but you don't have uh, you're you're not male, you're not female, you're just you're just are. I don't even know what we call that. I'm sure they have a name coming up for it. And uh, there's this 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 push to take away um, what is uh, feminine. And it's, uh, you know, a bit clear here we have, you know, we see uh, what's going on in Iran with women. You know, uh, we saw, uh, you know, women uh, cutting their hair to show their support. Um, and we see uh, protests uh, here at the U.S. We um, experienced uh, with the, the rights uh, women, uh, the Roe versus Way um, situation where women now have to, uh, you know, uh, which was uh, done away from women don't have that right anymore to choose uh, what's going on with uh, their their bodies um, when it comes to birth. Um, and just, you know, every, every day, <laughs> everyday circumstances of uh, what it is to be a woman is becoming, uh, it's becoming controversial. They even had, a, a, I can't think of the I have to remember the, the guy that uh, I think his last name is Walsh, uh, but he, I think it's, I want to say it's like Matt Walsh, but he had a whole series called What is a Woman? And it actually caused an uproar. Uh, he was doing an online um, uh, documentary series and people got so very angry um, when he was around, going around and asking people for their definition 
and it, uh, you know, it even had a time that somebody tried to shut down his show uh, just for asking that uh, question. So it's to me, I, I can't believe we've gotten here <laughs> to, to this point. Well, and, we, we are, live in our bodies and um, that we, I think, are approaching, I would hope that we are approaching a moment where we can respect the choices that individuals make about their bodies. Certainly we're seeing that, especially for young people, for young people who identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender, all under the category sometimes now of being queer, uh, an honorific term, no longer an insulting term as it, as it was decades and decades ago. Um, I think both are true, that we are looking for a universe where we do not want to have gender be a limiting category, where only boys can do this and only girls can do that, and the girls have to let the boys win at volleyball. And if a boy wants to paint his fingernails blue, that's absolutely forbidden because it is so frighteningly out of the gender binary. Um, but, you know, we see the absurdities to those rigid categorizations. On the other hand, um, if we're lucky enough to be alive on the planet, we are occupying bodies. So um, I think there is, when I said um, before that fiction allows us to be empathic about other people's lives, I think it's also true that in the ways that we live, we're looking for greater empathy. So I certainly side with those who are marching for women to have decision-making capacity of their own reproductive lives, for example. And there have been amazing surprises there, both good and bad. The fact that Ireland, for example, a, a country about whom it would not have been suggested a generation or two ago was going to be progressive when it came to abortion, has passed laws just recently uh, that make it um, legal and safe for women to control their own reproductive futures. Uh, we have seen the same in some Latin American countries, surprisingly, also very recently. And yet, in the United States, we've had the confiscation of women's rights with the uh, Supreme Court's decision to dismantle Roe v. Wade, which had been the law of the land for 49 and a half years. So um, certainly these issues around bodies and gender are, are not only top of mind, but also have been defining categories. Um, look, in this, in this book of fiction, Frankly Feminist, one of the categories of the stories, I, as I said a moment ago, these are not divided by chronology, but by theme. And one whole section of short stories is entitled Body and Soul. Uh, one of them is the story of a, of a black Jewish woman marching on the streets of Washington after the George Floyd murder. Um, the, one of the stories is looking at what we are told to do with our bodies, a teenage girl who wants to iron her hair because her hair is too curly and in her mind made her look too Jewish. Um, the idea that women who aspire to live their lives more freely are viewed as dangerous. So again, it comes back to that idea of agency does the do those in power have the right to dictate terms about how we live in our private lives, um, how we make our own decisions about conception or family foundation or whom we want to marry or don't want to marry? Yes. And so one of the things, you know, and this is, uh, I guess, a two-part question, um, uh, 
I guess we have to look at why the world wants to control women. And then how does uh, feminine, uh, how does uh, power play in feminism? Such an interesting question. Well, if we think about how power plays out in feminism, I guess if we can think of this as having agency rather than power, power, um, we often we often view as power over others, as being able to control other people. Agency has to do with do how we are able to express our own needs, find our own voices, speak our own truths, speak our own desires. And that those acts, you know, the, the root word of agency is the same as the root word for acting, for act. If we imagine that by enacting our own truths, we bring about greater authenticity and maybe greater peace in a lot of different ways in, in a domestic scene with parents and children, if there can be honesty without anger, relationships between partners, whether they are partners in, in a marital life or a domestic scene or living together as, as roommates or as lovers, as spouses, that allowing for the authenticity that gives the ability to at least say what one's desires are, not necessarily that we get to act on all those desires, but at least to be able to articulate them. And why the world wants to control women is that those who have it good or who feel their own superiority have benefited a great deal if they are able to be men and supporters of the patriarchy. Um, they are not typically willing to give up their privileges. Why would there be? I mean, the same thing plays out when we see economic inequities. Certainly when we see racial, racial and, and ethnic inequities, I think until the people wielding power over others see that a more equitable, peaceful environment, whether it's home or in the community or globally, is better for them too, um, we are still going to see these imbalances. Uh, I, numerous studies, it's so interesting to me, numerous studies have shown that more egalitarian marriages, for example, that are more based on a more partnership model, um, have been proven to be happier. It, there's, we can extrapolate from that that you know feminism has a lot to teach the world about erasing some of those tremendous imbalances. Yes, and you know you bring up a good point. Is I, I started thinking about you know having that egalitarian marriage. Um, that it does make a big difference. And in today's world, it's kind of, uh, <laughs> I'm going to maybe insult some people, but it's kind of foolish to try to do, uh, you know, a, um, a one-sided and where somebody has more power versus the other one, because there are so many different things that you have to deal with that are different than, uh, you know, p past errors. Um, and it's much more, we're living in a much more complex time. Um, you know, we're, we're working different. Uh, you have to deal with so many different things um, that you didn't have to deal with before if you're trying to raise, uh, you know, children, especially if you have multiple children, um, you know, that are maybe at different stages or um, in possibly different generations that you're maybe dealing with, you know, one child that's, uh, um, you know, uh, that wasn't so influenced by technology versus now a child that, you know, that's all they know. They never knew life without technology. And so you face different things. And so to try to be that one person is going to be, uh, quote unquote, in charge and the other person is the follower um, is almost to setting yourself up for failure in the future because things are moving so quickly. There's no way that uh, just one one person alone can be like, oh, I can, you know, this is what we're going to do. Because uh, who who can keep up with the the changes that are happening just just weekly? Um, that that's kind of an aside, but uh, definitely I was great I want to touch on that. Uh, oh, go ahead. You, yeah, I was just going to say it's a great aside because you make a strong case for diversity. 
that in fact not all people are alike and it's like being at a wonderful banquet you where you want to you know taste all different flavors all different spices that you know says we see it in family life of course where you know the young can teach the the older ones about how you manage technology because they are digital natives and those of us who who are over the age of whatever we choose you know 15 or 25 or 35 are digital immigrants you know we don't speak that language as natives do so um i think that those differences are in many ways delightful and not only worthy of respect but they make for a more bountiful and certainly more interesting life yes and one of the things in in that we're always hearing especially on the on the TV and articles and everything, um, and when people talk about you know uh, they want to, there's um, uh, I'll just say there's a subset of uh, I'll just call them I guess we'll say traditionalist women that are you know for for the patriarchy, and then there's the other side that it's like the patriarchy has you know done done too much. Uh, so when people are talking about the patriarchy, as people use that term and they toss it around like uh, you know. Um, it's a, just a, a regular term now that has become kind of trendy. What exactly is the patriarchy? Can you explain um, for for people? Well, certainly in the roots of that, it is that there will be a ruling class and that the ruling class will be men. Patriarchy is a power hierarchy that has men at the top and those men at the top are ruling over women and non-binary people and the animal kingdom. You know, it's fascinating to read a book like Sapiens about the the differences between humans and other species and uh, how communities develop as well. Of course, there are leaders and there are followers in many different circumstances, but it, it but patriarchy, particularly as we understand it as a as a, a term of critique, is a definition of wielding power over others in a way that does not allow them the full flourishing of their humanity. And patriarchy can be seen in economic terms, in social terms, in uh, in the way that we distribute the the good things of life. You know, there have been cultures in which the men filed down the pointy teeth of the women because then the men could eat all of the. Um, rich foods like meat would nourish them well, whereas women who weren't able to bite and chew meat were then left to sort of scrabble for what foods they could manage to consume. Um, and that, I think, is a good example of the control over resources that is meant when we talk about patriarchy as a pejorative term. Yes. And so um, I like that you uh, talked about the filing down teeth. It, 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 uh, it, it speaks to so many different um, things, not just, of course, of the meat eating, but uh, just in, in society in general. And so, you know, one of the things is we are facing these um, uh, changed times, I'll say. I will say that life is very different after this 2020 pandemic, whether people want to believe it or not. The world really has changed in how, uh, you know, people are looking at things. Um, in that time that we had these uh, two and a half years, and so, and have, depending on what country you are in, you are maybe still going through these uh, these lockdown years, unfortunately have really um, allowed people to uh, sit with themselves and think about, like, what exactly is this that we are creating in this world and who am I and what's my place in it? Um, you know, it's, it's woken up people um, inside deeper than I think they ever would have been if they had not had this time. And so in that, 
we have to think about the world and how we're interacting with it differently um, because of the experience that we have um, just had or are having. Uh, so how can uh, we go from this traditional type of patriarchy kind of look and how can men start to embrace this new world and be, uh, you know, maybe feminists themselves or uh, start opening their mind? Because I don't think we're going back. As, I, as they say, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. Right. Well, you know, because of the the lockdowns that the pandemic necessitated, the fact that people needed to pod up in smaller communities, and I say that understanding that it was a privileged position if you weren't a frontline worker or you didn't have to um, go to work uh, processing food so that people could still get food at a supermarket or at a bodega or get their food delivered, certainly people working in hospitals. But for many people, um, the ability to work from home or work under slightly different circumstances meant that work lives became more visible. We appreciated all the different steps that go into keeping a society going. So that was actually one consequence of the pandemic, that there was a greater respect for what goes into keeping all those oranges in the air at once in a society. The fact that in New York City, every night at 7, 7 p.m., I believe, people would go outside and applaud for people working in hospitals, people working in shelters, people working to keep others safe. And with that respect for different roles in society, I think we saw a shift on the domestic scene as well. When people were working at home more, if they, again, were fortunate enough to be able to continue to work and to work at home, and kids weren't in school, which was a, took a terrible toll on kids, but everybody could see everyone else's life up close. Children saw mothers and fathers, or households that had mothers and mothers, or fathers and fathers, take on all sorts of different tasks um, where, where everybody was responsible suddenly for making sure that there was food cooked and on the table, or the laundry got done, or the floors got swept. Um, a much less industrialized universe then has been to work in the long wall in the 18th, 19th century, long weren't working at home. <laughs> Some of that may have softened the rigid ways that we, <clears throat> excuse me, that we view gender roles. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it made, um, definitely, you know, I I continue to read articles about the, the impact um, that pandemic had on the domestic front, especially for women, are uh, you know that were uh, then working and also taking care of the kid, or maybe they had to uh, jump out of the workforce um, because you couldn't you couldn't do it all. And then um, in some cases, then husbands uh, did step up and they realized, okay, well, um, we have you know uh, five kids here, uh, three have to do homework, two are still. Uh, you know, um, babies, uh, somebody's got to uh, cook. So I think it um, it opened, hopefully, a, a number of men's eyes that uh, the things that uh, were considered, uh, you know, domestic work were really the, the work that uh, made everything kind of uh, function in the family. And because of that domestic work that was being done at home, it, it allowed you then to be able to go outside of work at home so domestic work became increasingly important, I believe, uh, during the pandemic. A lot of a number of people um, saw that, and they were also, of course, celebrating by baking a whole bunch of bread. <laughs> so, in <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I think we all gained like uh, at least uh, anywhere from five to ten pounds, or maybe more, depending on how much how much bread you enjoy. Um, uh, so, with that. I wanted to uh, kind of uh, go into what would you think uh, in this um, 
you know, where we are now. And, you know, of course, it's only the beginning of uh, 2023. And it's hard to predict because, you know, every year has been what I could say a surprise or shocker. <laughs> and what, what happens um, during since 2020, how would you, uh, what would your prediction be for 2023 and maybe even beyond? Because, of course, something like uh, getting uh, people to understand uh, feminism, and feminism in a positive light is not something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, what would you say this year will be kind of, if you were going to come up with like, an, I guess, a word or theme um, that would uh, talk about where women are in society and how we kind of move forward? I know it's a difficult question and, uh, and it's hard to kind of uh, you know, predict the future. I think more and more we are recognizing that women's situations are more similar than they are different around the globe. You know, March is the uh, is marked as International March the eighth, International Women's Day, and so I've been thinking a lot about the international part of that. Uh, sort of artificial holiday, as it were. And it's so very clear that when it comes to reproductive rights, the autonomy of our bodies, our safety, the Me Too movement, the constraints on women's freedoms of all sorts. And this has to do with everything. What happens to incarcerated women when they are about to give birth? What are those situations like? And those are often horrendous, even in the United States. Um, for women elsewhere, what is it like if they don't have access to contraception or if they don't have access to good gynecological care? And for women who are still earning less than men do, and we are now 50 years into the contemporary women's movement, and women have the same struggles that men do to sustain themselves, to have enough to eat to have clothing, to be able to be safe from the environmental depredations that we're all going to face on this planet. So I think that that we are going to see more and more this year and for a while to come an understanding that we aren't siloed in our own countries. Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, the perfect... Um, yeah, like this year is, I would say, learning that we are a community, um, you know, just where you are as a person, you know, extra neighbor, but we have a larger community that we are all part of, um, of this, you know, global community, and we're a lot closer than we ever could have imagined as we're seeing um, the same problems that we're dealing with here, you're dealing with there. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for this uh, fantastic discussion. Um, and thank you, Susan, for your time and insight. If you'd like to learn more about Susan or Lilith Magazine or the new book, Frankly Feminist, Short Stories by Jewish Women, you can go to Lilith.org. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or simply want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.org to start your project of change today. We're excited to announce in May 2023, we'll have our first annual Change Maker Conference. Go to www.changemakerconference to register now to attend. To our listeners, thanks for listening and thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on matter. Mm-hmm.